you have your Bibles, we're going to look at 2 Samuel chapter 5. 2 Samuel chapter 5. The Lord establishes David's kingship. And pray for us. Uh, we'll begin. Father, we thank you for your love for us, your grace in our lives. We thank you constantly giving us your word that we might know you more and experience you personally in intimate ways that we might follow the word of God and live according to your will. We pray that you be here with us, speak to us through this passage, make it personal and applicable to our lives, and uh, especially as we anticipate the revival meeting next weekend, prepare us. Stir our hearts, use your word to prepare us for greater things, greater blessings that you have for us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, So here we are in chapter 5, and this is where the Lord establishes David's kingship, a culmination of years and years of what God has been orchestrating after the promise that he would be the successor of Saul, the throne over his people Israel, finally comes uh, into fulfillment in this passage. You want to look at this, about how the Lord establishes his kingship. Just want to highlight a few verses in this passage. Um, Verse 10, 12, 20, and 14. And it really, in the midst of everything that's going on here, really points to what the Lord is doing. Verse 10 says, David became greater and greater, For the Lord, the God of hosts, was with him. Again, attributing everything that's happening to God. Verse 12, David knew that the Lord had established him king over Israel. Again, same idea. Verse 20, and he said, The Lord has broken through my enemies before me like a breaking flood. 24, the Lord has gone out before you to strike down the army of the Philistines. So even in this passage, as David is Fighting against his enemies, different things are happening. These verses root us into really what's going on behind the scenes. How it is the Lord working, orchestrating all things and establishing his kingship. So that's what we're going to look at and talk about through this passage. First, David, the leader. Chapter 5, verse 1 says, Then all the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and said, Behold, we are your bone and flesh. In times past, when Saul was king over us, it was you who let out and brought in Israel. The Lord said to you, You shall be shepherd of my people Israel, and you shall be prince over Israel. So all the leaders of Israel came to the king at Hebron, and King David made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord, and they anointed David king over Israel. So after Saul's death, David, if you remember, was first anointed king over Judah by the men of Judah. At that point, the people who followed Saul, who previously followed Saul, did not acknowledge David as their king. But now after Ishbosheth's death, all the tribes of Israel, it says, came to David. So finally, after many years, 
the promise that the Lord gave to David is being fulfilled. He is now king over all Israel. One commentator, Dr. Robert Vinoy, describes the divine and human dimensions in this process of David coming to the throne. Notice in verse 2, the end of verse 2 where it says, you shall be prince over Israel, right? That word prince, that word prince means leader. And this is what God said to David, right? You shall be leader over Israel. Verse 3, it says, all the others of people, at the end it says, anointed David king over Israel. So here the people come and anoint him king over Israel. Dr. Vinoy says, the term prince, right, leader, is a term of divine significance. No, I'm sorry, divine designation. While the term king is a word more associated with the human political dimension of the office. Okay, so, so there's both of this idea of God establishing him as a leader and the people anointing him king. And we see that in the life of David, in the entire process of how God guided all the events leading up to this point and fulfilled his word that David would be the leader over his people Israel. And what God was doing is now being recognized by the people as they make a covenant with David and anoint David king over Israel. It's kind of like when, um, for example, when a pastor gets ordained, right? There's something that God was doing in that person's life, right? Calling that person, placing a conviction in that person's heart. And then, simultaneously, parallel to that, there's a process, right? There's a ceremony that is done before the people who recognize and agree with the divine action by God. So it's kind of like what's going on here. And we can also apply this to how each of us might come to recognize our own individual callings in life. For example, there's a, there's a dimension in which God is at work in our lives, right? God places and grows certain desires, certain passions in your heart. He also opens some doors, closes some doors for you. And then there's also the human dimension that parallels what God is doing. Um, people around us might acknowledge our gifts and abilities. Your parents maybe told you what they think you're good at. Maybe they told you too much and then you come to college, you think you're good at everything. And then now you have friends that tell you what you're bad at. And then those things work together. And then eventually a job opens up that you're interested in and something that you're qualified for. So there are both of this, these dimensions, the divine and the human dimension in the process of discovering God's will for us and realizing our calling in life. Hope that made sense. Okay, notice uh, something else here from these verses. That when the, the tribes of Israel came to David, it's the very people who previously rebelled against David who are now coming to him at Hebron. Okay, so think about that, right? It's the very people who opposed him, who rebelled against him, who, who said they don't think he should be king, that are now coming to him at Hebron. But now on David's part, there's no, like, um, putting them on probation. There's no 
classifying them as second-tier citizens in Israel. There's none of that. Because they come to David in obedience to the Lord. They come acknowledging that the Lord said, right? They, they say that the Lord said, you shall be shepherd of my people in Israel and you shall be prince over Israel. So David does not, I guess he could have, but he does not create drama here. He does not make things personal. Because for David as the leader, his goal is ultimately to bring the people to God so that they can live in obedience to the Lord. His goal is for the Lord's people to follow the Lord, even if that comes through his own pain. Even if the ultimate goal is to have the people live in obedience to God, to not rebel against God, but to follow the Lord. But even if getting there requires hurt and pain on his part, he does that. He's willing to do that because that's what it means to be the leader, the leader that God's called him to be. A leader has to take on and absorb some of these kinds of offenses in the process of serving the people. That's what seems to be going on here. What matters to David is that they're now wanting to follow the Lord, wanting to do the Lord's will. So he does not make it about himself. He does not classify them differently. He passes over and done with, and they become a unified nation. Um, you know, I mentioned Pastor Min is our our guest speaker, and he was my pastor for, for many years. And this principle in leadership, in pastoral leadership, is something that really I learned from him. Back at CFC, and that's a church where I was at, you noticed how now, you know, when we planted, I made the church name CLC, a little one-letter difference. Um, back at CFC when I was there, like, well, so it's, it's not a, a small community like ours where everyone just cares for and loves one another. It's a larger church, and when it's a larger church, it's not as personal. And so we used to have these things called evaluation at the end of each semester, and that's where people write. I mean, how do you give feedback to it in a large church? It doesn't really happen through email and word of mouth, but they used to have these formal evaluations where people, small group members, and everyone, leaders, would fill out. And uh, this is the thing that I really didn't like because it was a part in the evaluations that asked a question about the pastor. Is there something, I don't know how it was phrased, there's something you want to say, something, something about your pastor. And the thing is, like, you can do 100 things right throughout the semester. If you do one thing wrong, okay, so you do 99 things right, you do one thing wrong, it shows up in the evaluation. And uh, in the beginning of a new semester, we would you know, go through these and we would address some of these things that came up in these evaluations. And I remember like Pastor Min, he would stand there in front of the church or in front of the, the leadership. And I remember just how he would be so gracious in addressing these feedbacks or complaints or um, different kinds of things. Just so gracious. A lot of times when I'm sitting there in the back thinking, Oh man, that's not right. Like that's a that's a bad attitude the person is having. That's not the whole picture. You could say this and and kind of like argue that point. A lot of times he wouldn't do that. He'd be so gracious and understanding. 
in how we would address them. And in some of those particular situations where people addressed me specifically, oh, Pastor Jong said this, or he did this, he would encourage me and tell me to apologize, to actually stand there and apologize. Okay, so you got to understand, there are like maybe 250 people there. Um, 249 people don't even know what that one person wrote. But he would encourage me to stand there and apologize for this one thing. And a lot of times, to be honest with you, I would think to myself, like, no way. I don't want to apologize for that. This person is like taking this really out of, just, they're, they're, they're interpreting it wrongly. It's just their perspective. I have something that I want to say to them personally on my own. No, I don't want to apologize. But a lot of times, I would stand there and, oh, yeah, I mean, I can understand where you're coming from. And I want to say, I'm sorry about that. And I stand there and apologize for it. But that's the thing. That's what I learned through that process, that the pastor has to be willing to bear the burden or some of those kinds of offenses or pain for the sake of the people so that they can grow. A lot of times it doesn't really even matter who's really right or wrong in some of those situations. But for the sake of the people, for their benefit of drawing closer to the Lord, I'm sorry. And uh, I think that's what we see here through David. Nothing's personal. He absorbs the, the offense, absolves it, because the people now come seeking to do the Lord's will. Indeed, there's that thing. David the leader. Secondly, David the follower. Um, I'm going to jump to verse 17 because it seems like chronologically this is what happens next after the anointing. Because it says in verse 17, when the Philistines heard that David had been anointed king over Israel, all the Philistines went up to search for David. But David heard of it, went down to the stronghold. So the stronghold here is probably the strongholds that he used in the past as he fled from Saul. Uh, 18. Now the Philistines had come, spread out in the valley of Ephraim, Raphaim. And David inquired of the Lord, Shall I go up against the Philistines? Will you give them into my hand? Now think about this. This is not... The situation that David is in here is not like where, when he was on the run from Saul. David is king now, which, mean, which means he has all of Israel at his disposal, right? So I, I suppose he could have like flexed a bit here, right? Um, but that's not what he does. He inquired of the Lord. Continuing on in verse 19, and the Lord said to David, go up. For I will certainly give the Philistines into your hand. And David came to Baal-perazim, and David defeated them there. And he said, The Lord has broken through my enemies before me like a breaking flood. Therefore, the name of that place is called Baal-perazim, which means the Lord who breaks through. Uh, verse 21, And the Philistines left their idols there, and David and his men carried them away. David sought the Lord, 
the Lord's guidance before the battle, and then he attributes the victory to the Lord after the battle. Verse 22, the Philistines came up again, yet again, and spread out in the valley of Rephaim. Um, you know, almost every time a fighter loses a match, he thinks he can do better the next time, so he demands a rematch, right? That's why we, we you know, Sylvester Stallone's still making Rocky movies, right? That's why the, the Jedi and the Sith are still fighting in galaxies this December, I think. Seems like that's kind of what's going on here. The Philistines come back to the same place, expecting different results. Verse 23, and when David inquired of the Lord, he said, so this is now God who, who says, you shall not go up. Go around to the rear and come against them opposite the balsam tree. When you hear the sound of marching in the top of the balsam trees, then rouse yourself, for then the Lord has gone out before you to strike them, strike down the army of the Philistines. Okay, so think about this. David sought the Lord's help again. The Lord speaks to him. But he gives David now a new battle strategy. He says, go around the rear. Don't go to the front. Go around the rear. And then proceed only when you hear the sound of marching troops from the top of the trees. Because that'll be the sign that the Lord is fighting for you. Think about this because what the Lord says sounds weird. If anyone else said this, it certainly would have been taken as a joke or like he's a lunatic. So I guess here what David, his attitude could have been different. He could have said, I just defeated the Philistine. It's the same army. I have the same army. I'll just do the same thing. I'm pretty sure I can take them. Or he could have filtered the Lord's command. God, what you're saying does not make sense. I don't think that's going to work. You mean just wait until I hear something from the top of the tree? I think rather I'll approach him from the front like I did before. But that wasn't David's attitude. What the Lord commanded was not logical, but he obeyed. And in verse 25, David did as the Lord commanded him, and struck down the Philistines from Geba to Gezir. I think what the author is portraying here is this, that there's something very pure and simple about David's kingship. Because what David did here, anyone could have done. The mark of David's kingship was not in his exceptional military skills, was not in his cunning political strategies, none of those things. It was just his simple trust and obedience to the Lord. This reminded me of the song that I used to listen to when I was in college. It's by this Christian singer, Twyla Paris, called The Warrior is a Child. Does anyone know this song? My wife knows this song. Let me um, read you a part of this song. The lyric, it's poetry. It's a poem. It's beautiful. The warrior is a child, okay? It goes like this. Lately, I've been winning battles left and right. But even winners can get wounded in the fight. People say that I'm amazing, strong beyond my years. 
but they don't see inside of me I'm hiding all the tears. They don't know that I go running home when I fall down. They don't know who picks me up when no one is around. I drop my sword and cry for just a while because deep inside this armor, the warrior is a child. Because deep inside this armor, the warrior is a child. You see, in the battlefield, David might have been a brave warrior, but behind the scenes, he was a dependent child whose greatest weapon was not in his strength or his intelligence, but simply in his trust and obedience to the Lord. That was the key to his success. And what that means is no matter how big our problems are in, in our lives, the solution is simple. God says, obey the words in my book. Trust me and follow my commands. But I guess that's kind of the hard part, right? Because he says things like, sell your wealth, sell your wealth, give to the poor, and then come follow me. Then you'll have treasure in heaven. He says things like, give away your life to find it in the end. What the Lord commands is often not logical. So it's tempting for us to think that we know better. God, forget that. I'm going to approach it from the front. But that's the thing. We're to be marked by, marked as people who trust and obey God. And that's something that anyone can do. It does not require special abilities to do. And if you're good at following, if you're just good at following, trusting and obeying and following, then God will use you. David, the follower. Thirdly, lastly, David, the great king. Now we're going to jump back to verse 6. And the king and his men went to Jerusalem against the Jebusites, the inhabitants of the land, who said to David, verse 6, And the king and his men went to Jerusalem against the Jebusites, the inhabitants of the land, who said to David, You will not come in here, for the blind and the lame will ward you off, thinking David cannot come in here. The Jebusites were one of the original inhabitants of the land of Canaan, who still were there. Like they coexisted with the Israelites. They were so well fortified in the Jerusalem, the city of Jerusalem, they were confident that David could not take them. Seven, nevertheless, David took the stronghold of Zion, that is the city of David. David said on that day, whoever would strike the Jebusites, let him get up the water shaft to attack the lame and the blind, who are hated by David's soul. Therefore it is said, blind and the lame shall not Come into the house. David takes the city, and Jerusalem becomes his new capital, Zion, the city of David. And uh, just kind of a parenthetical comment here. We don't know exactly what this is referring to when it says the blind and the lame shall not come into the house. Um, so don't spend too much time in smuggle trying to figure that out. Verse 10, David became greater and greater for the Lord, the God of hosts, was with him. So from the very beginning, the author wants us to know how successful David was, and he makes it unmistakably clear 
that it was the Lord that was behind David's success. Verse 11, Hiram, king of Tyre, sent messengers to David, cedar trees, also carpenters, masons who built David a house. David knew that the Lord had established him king over Israel, that he had exalted his kingdom for the sake of his people, Israel. So a part of God making David greater and greater, right? Verse 10 said, God, David became greater and greater, for the Lord was with him. A part of God making David greater and greater and establishing him king and exalting his kingdom, a part of all that was moving the hearts of foreign kings to send people, to send materials to build David a house. This is an amazing thing that we don't read about in other places in Israel's history apart from the Lord moving and working for the sake of his people. Verse 12 says, David witnessed these things, things like this, and it says that David knew that the Lord was behind all of this. David knew that the Lord had established him king and had exalted his kingdom. I think this is a good thing to kind of pause and think about. Because after David became king, it would have been logical for him to say things like, I need to fortify the city better. Or I need to train up this army and make it stronger. Or we need to acquire some more horses, chariots, make better weapons. Because now we're a unified nation. We're a legit nation now. If we're going to compete with those other nations, we have to keep up. We have to do this and that. But again, there's none of that here. Again, faith and obedience were the key ingredients to David's kingship. Because David knew that it was the Lord who was making him greater and greater. That it was the Lord who had exalted his kingdom. David did not take the credit himself. His attitude was, I'm not qualified. None of this is based on my merit. The Lord has, has established me. And that's the route that he continues to pursue. Trust the Lord. Obey the Lord. Follow the Lord. And he will make this kingdom great. I overheard this week one of the human beings that live in our house, say these words. He goes, I have two headphones. And he's talking about Apple headphones. He goes, what if I cut one of them to make them look like AirPods? Do you see the brilliant logic there? Apple AirPods look just like Apple headphones without the wire. So just cut and remove the wires, and instantly, I'll have AirPods. That's a brilliant shortcut, except for one thing. The modified headphones that look like AirPods are not AirPods at all. They won't do anything that an AirPod's supposed to do, except hang in your ear. To legitimately acquire AirPods would require a lot of hard work. 
It would require hours of mowing the lawn. Years and years of mowing the lawn. Raking leaves, especially now. Saving up birthday money. Christmas money. New Year's money. For years and years. To finally to be able to purchase those AirPods that are like unusually expensive. Because, you know, they, they are. They're just expensive. To acquire AirPods would require a lot of hard work. Um, so why not just take a shortcut and uh, make something that looks like AirPods? I think there's a valuable lesson there that applies on many levels. For example, our nation, like many other nations, tries to be strong. So we have a lot of smart people trying to improve our economy. We have even more smart people, not even more, but other smart people trying to strengthen our military. We have other smart people trying to advance us technologically. All of these efforts, but in the end, those are all shortcuts to becoming a great nation. Because those things don't make us a strong nation at all. I mean, think about it. There's so many other nations throughout history that have tried making themselves great through their, through their economy or through their military. But they all fail throughout history. And where, where are they now? They're just in our history books. Why does it fail? Because it's ultimately the Lord who makes the nation great. That's why even today, like that's why we pray. That's why we pray for our nation. That's why we pray for our leaders to humbly follow the Lord because we understand that that's the key to being blessed by God. That same principle applies to each one of us, to each one of our lives individually. I mean, think about it. There are many different ways that we try to establish great lives for ourselves. All of us, like to some degree, that's kind of like one of the goals that we have, right? To establish a great life for ourselves. And of course, it involves studying hard when you're young so that we can have a great career that produces high income. Why? Why do you want income, greater income? Because once you have that, then you can buy, right? You can buy that Honda Civic with nice rims that you can eventually upgrade to a Lexus or a BMW. So that you can buy, like, so that you can eventually end up in a 5,000, 10,000 square feet house. Have the ability to travel. Freedom to do what you want with early retirement and so on. So that one day, one, we can look back on our lives and say, wow, what a great life I had. But again, even on that level, this passage is telling us, it's ultimately the Lord who establishes a person and makes him great. We saw that. Just, it's just like that parable that we saw several weeks ago, where we can seat ourselves in exalted seats, seats in this life. We can place ourselves in all of those places, and that could be our goal, to sit there and, and sit there. 
But in the end, God moves everyone to their proper place. The first will be last, and the last will be first. Because ultimately, it's the Lord who establishes a person and makes him great. That's why it's a blessing. It's a great blessing to be able to humbly look at our lives and say, I'm not qualified. I'll never be qualified. Nothing I have is based on my merit. The Lord has established me purely by his grace through Jesus Christ. Because just as David understood, faith and obedience, faith and obedience in the finished work of Jesus Christ are the key ingredients of a blessed life. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your great love for us. We thank you that you are the one that establishes our lives in the way that you worked for your people throughout redemptive history. Help us to see that, believe that as we read it in Scripture, see that in our own lives so that we can submit ourselves to you, trust in you, what Jesus accomplished for us, and give ourselves to you more and more. Be with us. We pray in Jesus' name. You know, at that uh, retreat that I went to a few weeks ago, um, it was a uh, congregation was probably a lot of uh, people in their 40s, mostly, with children, young kids, and teenagers. And then the Sunday service was the youth group and the adults together. So they're sitting there. And uh, one of the things that I was kind of challenging the congregation about was uh, where, uh, really, like where where your confidence in, confidence is in, like who you're trusting to establish your life, and and um, uh, in that kind of in that context with the adults and kids together, I was saying like even to the parents, like why you, why you always like nagging your kids to practice their piano and like bring home good grades. Um, if you don't ultimately believe that that's where that's the key to being established in your life, but that's it's like so it's like so um, ironic how that works. Like as a kid, like you don't like it that your parents are like that to you, but then when you become their age, you do that to your kid, and it's like this vicious cycle because. Even though we go to church and we live our lives saying that we believe these things, deep inside we really think that it's um, academic success that's going to establish our lives. It's material success that's going to establish our lives. Uh, it's uh, advancing in this world that's going to establish our lives. And then we like propagate that even to uh, our children and the next generation, things like that. And we have to really understand that and, and really like take it to heart that um, even if I'm like this undereducated, uh, financially challenged, this and that kind of person, if I'm trusting the Lord and living my life in obedience to God, then I am blessed. And let's pray. So I'm not saying like don't study. I'm not saying drop out of school right now. Um, don't, don't say those things to your parents. I don't want your parents emailing me about that. Uh, 
but we are saying that we need to focus on the Lord because He is the one that establishes our life. So let's just pray uh, concerning that. Pray that our priorities would be in the right place, especially as we prepare for revival. That would be the, the direction of our hearts, just wanting to get closer to the Lord and to ultimately give our lives completely into His hands. Pray for that before we close. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you that your word is so universal, applies to every single person here, no matter where we are in our lives, in terms of our age, or in terms of our where we are spiritually, how it's so true that in all the different things that we have in our lives, different things that we're dealing with, um, when Christ is not at the center of it, things become disorderly, chaotic. But when Christ is at the center, all things come into order. Help us to believe that. And as we think about the present, as we think about the future, just to really align ourselves according to uh, Christ-centered life and pray that we will learn to submit ourselves to you in humble faith and obedience to your word. Pray that it would be a great week where we fight our sins and really pursue after Christ. Pray that you would fill our hearts with your blessings for revival meeting. Speak to us and work in our hearts in amazing ways that we might have an intimacy with you that we um, that you long for for us to have. Be with us. Uh, be with our church. May this be a great semester growing together and becoming more like Christ. Now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, this incredible unchanging covenant love of the Father God, the fellowship and the strength, the power of the Holy Spirit be with you God's people both now and forever. Amen.